We are continuing our series through 1 Samuel this morning. The story in 1 Samuel is narrating historical events from about 3,000 years ago. And what is amazing is how relevant it is to us today. God's Word is always relevant to us today. First and Second Samuel are really one large work, but the earliest manuscripts we had were recorded on two large scrolls, and so those became First and Second Samuel. Uh, in the books of Samuel, we see the transition from local rule of judges to the national rule of kings. And today's text explains why that transition originally took place. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 8 today. Go ahead and turn there in your own Bible, if you would. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 22. Uh, 1 Samuel is about 20% of the way through your Bible. Uh, if you're using a Bible like one of our church Bibles, you can find that on page 230, page 230. 1 Samuel is the ninth book in the Bible. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and finally, 1 Samuel. If you get to 2 Samuel, you've gone one book too far. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. The central theme of today's text is a king in the Lord's place. A king in the Lord's place. Uh, this week, as I was working on crafting the wording of the theme, I, I couldn't get it quite right. And then I read Ralph Davis's commentary on this chapter, and his title for this chapter was A King in God's Place. And immediately I just said, that's it. That is the theme of 1 Samuel 8. That's the most precise and concise way to say it. That's what the people want. That's what is happening in the text. Uh, and my only change was to use the Lord instead of God. Uh, the Lord is God's name that we see very frequently in 1 Samuel. Uh, the Lord is the English uh, common translation for the Hebrew word Yahweh. Uh, it's the Lord's personal name. And we see it throughout 1 Samuel. So the theme of this chapter is a king in the Lord's place. As we study this chapter together, you'll see exactly uh, that this is what is happening in our text. A king in the Lord's place. Well, to study this chapter together, I think the easiest path is to follow the plot line of our narrative. Uh, the typical plot format is setting, rising action, climax, and then falling action. So those will be our major, set, uh, major headings this morning. Setting, rising action, climax, and falling action. And the first point in the plot is the setting. And the setting today will highlight the beginning of the conflict that really drives today's text. The setting lays out what we're going to call a serious problem. A serious problem. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Verse 3. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. As chapter 7 ended, things were looking good. The people have repented of their sin. They have turned from their idols and false gods. They're committed to serving the living God. 
now they have a faithful judge. Samuel is depicted almost as a second Moses, a model judge. There's peace all around. As chapter 8 begins, though, we have a sudden reversal. Samuel has gotten old. He cannot do all of the judging himself. And so Samuel enlists his two sons to help him. Historically, this is a really common plan of succession. The son carries on for the father. And historically, that has been true for the family farm, the family business, or the family dynasty, as we have in our text. Unfortunately, we see in our text the other common historical reality, which is that the sons often choose not to follow the path of their father. And that happens in this way. Samuel was faithful, but his sons are not. Samuel's sons are lovers of money. The text says they turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. It isn't that they never pursued justice. They just didn't necessarily pursue justice as much as they pursued money. As one of them said, I think the most important thing about me is my love of justice. And for the right price, I can make sure justice goes your way. Justice tends to fall more on the well-watered side of the tree. Well, Samuel's sons are dishonest men, and Samuel should remove them, just as Eli should have done with his sons before. Samuel is acting foolishly and even sinfully, we could say, to allow his sons to continue leadership. Well, this is the setting of our text this morning. Samuel's sons are perverting justice. From that setting, we see the beginning of the rising action. Uh, the next section is the rising action in the story. Uh, the rising action has four distinct speeches in it, four separate moments. We have an innocent request, a mixed response, a excuse me, an omniscient response, and finally, a clear warning. So an innocent request, a mixed response, an omniscient response, and a clear warning. Uh, let's look first at that innocent request. But before we do, I need to tell you actually that innocent is supposed to be in scare quotes, an innocent request. Uh, we'll have to let the text reveal to us whether it's really an innocent request or not. Uh, look down in your Bibles at verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. When we read this request, it seems like an innocent request. We could even say it looks like a reasonable and wise request. If there are unfaithful judges, wicked judges, judges who pervert justice, then those judges certainly should be replaced. So there's nothing wrong with them asking for Samuel's sons to be replaced, even though they're Samuel's sons. It was right for them to ask for Samuel's sons to be removed. And the request for a king seems innocent as well. 
After all, Moses had told Israel that they would one day have a king. Moses had laid out guidelines to that future king of what his administration should look like. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17. Uh, Turn there real quick. I want you to see this in your own Bible. Uh, Turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Deuteronomy is on the left of 1 Samuel in your Bible, uh, probably up in your digital Bible. It's the last book of the Torah or Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And we're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Verse 15, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Verse 18, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. God told them they could have a king over them. Verse 15, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. They can have a king a king of God's choosing. Uh, In verses 16 and 17 here, there are various negative warnings to the king. And then in verses 18 through 20, we see several positive instructions of what his his administration should look like. Uh, All of this laying out a clear plan to one day have a king. So there's nothing inherently wrong with asking for a king. A king was always part of the plan. On both counts, we see this request seems innocent. Israel should confront unjust rulers. Israel can ask for a king. This appears to be an innocent request. However, this seemingly innocent request is met by a mixed response. Uh, Samuel responds, but his response is not 100% consistent. It is what I'm calling a mixed response. Verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Samuel is not pleased. Not pleased at all. Who who do these people think they are? They, They don't need a king to judge over them. They have me and my sons to judge over them. Well, I think we can understand Samuel's response. He's been insulted. And he is not going to stand for it. 
Here he has served these people faithfully for decades, and this is the thanks he gets. And they called him old. He's not going to stand for that. Never the mind, never mind, never mind the fact that his sons are carrying out evil and injustice. He's done the best he could. Well, we can relate to Samuel. That's often how we respond. We get upset when our work or our service is undermined. I'm not saying this is a God-honoring response. It is not. I'm just saying it's relatable. But Samuel does have a positive response in the text. In the midst of his turmoil, he goes to God in prayer. We see this at the end of verse 8. Samuel prayed to the Lord. Samuel's first response to us is a reminder that we have to be careful how we respond to offense. But second, Samuel's second response is a better example. Samuel goes to the one place where we always get the best answer. God always knows what is best for us, and God always does what is best for us. So we can take our cares and our concerns to God, and we know that he will do what is best for us. Samuel takes his concern to the Lord. Even in a response that has not been ideal, Samuel still knows to trust in the Lord. So Samuel gives a mixed response. He doesn't respond well, but he does take his concern to God. Well, as the action continues to rise, we find an omniscient response. The Lord gives an omniscient response. Verse 7 in our text. I forgot to tell you, I hope you've turned back to 1 Samuel by now. We're back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Verse 8, According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice only. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king that shall reign over them. Verses 7 through 9 are the center of today's passage. If we fail to understand verses 7 through 9, we will not understand this text correctly. First of all, in verse 7, we come to understand Samuel's response correctly. Before reading verse 7, we might think Samuel is upset because the people are rejecting God. That is not the case. Samuel is upset because he is rejected. That's why God tells Samuel not to be upset about being rejected. You don't need to be upset, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. So we see that Samuel's response has been imperfect, with the exception that he prayed, which again was good. But verse 7 is where we also come to understand that the people's response is sinful. They have not rejected Samuel, but they have rejected the Lord as being king over them. There was nothing inherently wrong with rejecting Samuel's evil sons. There was nothing inherently wrong with asking for a king. What is wrong is that in their hearts, 
They have rejected the Lord as king. They want a king in the Lord's place. Did you notice our scripture reading this morning that the Lord was king in Israel? Uh, Deuteronomy 33, 5, it was our scripture reading. Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. The Lord was their king. They didn't have a human king because the Lord was their king. And also in Deuteronomy 33, we find that as their king, the Lord fought for them. He rode through the chariot, rode through the sky as on a chariot. He was their sword of triumph. He was their shield of help. He is their savior. The Lord is their king who fights for them. But now the people have rejected the Lord as king. They want a king in the Lord's place. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but Daniel, you just told us a few minutes ago that there didn't seem to be anything wrong with their request. Samuel's sons were evil judges. Uh, God said they could have a king. So why are we now saying it's wrong to ask for a king? Well, God identifies for us precisely why it was wrong for them to ask for a king. They have rejected the Lord as king over them. They want a king in the Lord's place. It isn't simply that they ask for a king. It is that they are wanting a king to replace the Lord. They want a king in the Lord's place. They rejected the Lord as king, and so now they want a new king in his place. Now, hopefully, our first response, our first instinct is to say, well, where does it say that in the text? That's a great theory and all, but what does the text say? Where does the text say they're rejecting the Lord as king? And so our first instinct, or at least my first instinct, is to go back to verse 5 and see what verse 5 says. And so we go back to verse 5, and verse 5 doesn't say anything like that. Verse 5 says they want a king because Samuel is old and his sons aren't like him. It doesn't say anything about rejecting the Lord. Well, if the text doesn't say that they have rejected the Lord as king, then how can we really know that? Well, our problem is that we're looking at the wrong text. We want the people to tell us their heart intention in verse 5, but they don't. The text that tells us the real heart issue is verse 7. The people don't say anything that we can tell is wrong. It is the Lord who identifies for us what they say is wrong. And that the problem is that they want a king in the Lord's place. You know, the perspective of the divine narrator is a very common literary approach. Uh, writers of pretty much every genre of literature give us information from the divine narrator. Divine narrator. Uh, the divine narrator gives us inner dialogue and thoughts and private conversations that would generally not be available to any other person. But the divine narrator tells us these things. Well, the Bible is absolutely unique among all literature in that the divine narrator is actually divine. The Lord God is the divine narrator. And so when the Lord God says that the problem is that they have rejected the Lord, we can know with confidence that that is the problem. It doesn't have to be revealed anywhere else in the text. 
And this principle is going to be really important and helpful as we keep studying 1 Samuel. There are times that we cannot directly discern what a character has done right or wrong, but the narrator tells us that they have done right or wrong. And so we have to interpret their actions in light of that revelation to us, even when we can't tell from the actions themselves. Usually, almost always, the fundamental issue is an issue of the heart, an issue of faith. And here, the divine narrator reveals to us that the heart of the people is such that they want a king in the Lord's place. One more thing about this section. What this divine narrator reveals is an omniscient response. An omniscient response. Omniscient means all-knowing. The Lord knows all things, including the hearts of men. Man can only look at the outward appearance and make judgments, but the Lord knows the heart. The Lord knows our hearts. God knows all things. There's literally nothing hidden from God. God's omniscience is such an amazing thing. It's hard for us to get a grasp on. Uh, We're always learning new things. Uh, The older we get, the more we realize how much we have left to learn. Things that we thought we had learned in the past and mastered, we realize there's more to know than we ever thought possible. And then Of the things we do know already, we're always forgetting things. I can forget things I learned last month or last week that my wife told me five minutes ago. But the Lord knows all things. He never takes in new information. He never receives new data. He never forgets anything either. He's not learning on the fly. The Lord is omniscient. He knows all things. The Lord knows what is going on in the hearts of the people. And here the Lord shares with Samuel what the people really want. The people want a king in the Lord's place. Verse 8 highlights that what is happening here is really a pattern. From the time God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, they have been quick to turn away from the Lord. The Lord rescued them from Egypt and brought them miraculously into the wilderness. And then they turned their hearts back to slavery in Egypt. And the Lord brought them to the edge of the promised land. And then their hearts turned back in fear from the power of the local citizens. Then the Lord brought them into the promised land. And their hearts turned away after local idols. And God sent judges to lead and save them, and they turned after other gods. Again and again, the people wanted something else in the Lord's place. And now they want a king in the Lord's place. It is the same pattern all over again. Someone or something ruling in the place of the Lord. A king in the place of the Lord. Friend, the Lord knows everyone's heart. If you're not a Christian, we are glad you're joining our online worship. We would love for you to come and meet with us in person. But you need to understand that isn't hidden from God. If you're 
trusting in yourself, if you believe you do not need salvation, if you're trusting in your own goodness, if you've rejected God's Son, God knows these things. You cannot hide your heart from God. You cannot hide your sin from God. God knows every evil thought you've ever had, every evil action you've ever taken. The Lord knows. The Lord knows your heart. The Lord knows even better than you do how evil you are. Since you haven't even recognized yet, the Lord knows. Here's something else amazing about the Lord. God saves sinners despite knowing the worst about them. God loves us despite the worst things about us. He sent his son to save us from our sin. And our text this morning is actually a preview of how God determined to save. We're not that different from the people in today's text. We just put different things in the Lord's place. Maybe work or respect or politics or sports or security or success or relationships or intellect or health. Maybe money. A lot of people have put money in the Lord's place. We trust in our bank account and our retirement account and our mutual fund, and we hold on to them tightly. Those of us who still have jobs right now and are still being paid will demonstrate if money is our king based on how we respond to the events of the world right now. Uh, There are a lot of people who, through no fault of their own, are are in desperate circumstances. Uh, Their stable job just shut down, and they've got nothing. Uh, I talked to a pastor friend this week, and half of his church has no job. How will we respond in this time? Will we hoard what we have? Will we cling to it tightly? Or will we be looking to help those who have more need than us? Is the Lord king, or is the bank balance king? Who or what is king in your heart? We only have room for one king. Is the Lord king or is there another king in the Lord's place? In verse 9, God tells Samuel to let the people have what they want. Warn them about the king and what a king will be like, but then let them have the king they want. As the plot develops a final phase of the rising action, a clear warning. A clear warning. We see this in verses 10 through 18. Um, Look at verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make implements of war and the equipment for his chariots. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants, and the best of your young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. 
He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. In this final section of rising action, Samuel warns the people what a king will be like. And the central theme of the warning is that the king will take. The king will take. You think having a king is about what he'll do for you. That's not how this works. A king will take from you. Now, none of the things that the king takes are inherently wrong. He's just taking to establish a bureaucracy and to run a kingdom. But he is still taking. All these things were yours before, but now the king will take them from you. Verse 12 is like this overarching summary of what is needed, and then the taking begins in verse 13. Well, I guess first in verse 11, he will take your sons and appoint them to these various things. Then in verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your land to be fields and vineyards and orchards for himself and his servants. He will take a tenth of your crop, your grain and your grapes for himself and his people. He will take your servants, your young men, and your livestock so that they can work for him. He will also take a tenth of the flock. Now, this is the second time we've seen a tenth. A tenth of the crops and a tenth of the flock. Do you know who took the tenth before? The Lord. The Lord did. The Lord asked for a tithe, for a tenth. And now the king is taking the Lord's place, and the king is demanding the Lord's portion. So Samuel's warning is highlighting the cost of a king and the replacement by the king. That is, the king is replacing the Lord, taking the Lord's place. See that last line in verse 17. You will be his slaves. The last thing that the king will take is you. You were free before, but you will be slaves now. You were slaves of the Lord before, which is true freedom, but now you will be slaves to your king. And then notice verse 18. In that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You have asked for a king in the Lord's place, and he will be there in the Lord's place. But if you get a king in the Lord's place, then the Lord won't be there when you cry out. You'll cry out because of your king, but the king's in the Lord's place. So you can take your problems to the king because the Lord won't answer. This leads us to the climax of our story. What will the people do? They thought they wanted a king, but now they've been warned about what a king will do. The king is going to take the Lord's place. Is that really what we want? And if this were a movie, cue the dramatic music has been rising this whole time, and all of a sudden we have silence. What will the people do? So our third section is the climax. For now, let's call this section a king in the Lord's place. 
Question mark. We have to see which way the people will go. Verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel finishes the sermon. The service is over. The, the people gather up together. So, short sermon today. Something about king. Samuel seemed kind of upset about something. You watching the game today? What time are the Tishbites playing? But then they come around to the real issue. So, we want a king or not? I get that he's saying the king isn't going to take the tenth of the stuff and all. But if we don't get a king, the Philistines will come and take all of it. 90% is better than 0%, right? And then someone else pipes up and says, but, but didn't you notice how the king is really taking the Lord's place? Isn't the Lord our king? Hasn't the Lord been fighting our battles? And everyone just stares at that guy. So anyway, we, we want a king, right? And they all vote on it, and it's pretty near unanimous. Samuel, thanks for the warning and all, but we're going to go ahead and take the king in the Lord's place. Even the language that they're using highlights their blindness to what they're saying. They want a king to go and fight their battles. They should know that the Lord is the one who has promised to go and fight their battles. They could have the Lord God who created the universe go fight their battles for them. But they want a human king to go and fight their battles. They want a king in the Lord's place. Finally, we have falling action. The decision is made. The fallout begins. Verse 21. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. The Lord tells Samuel to give them their request. Give them a king like all the other nations. Well, I hope I don't ruin the rest of 1 Samuel for you if I tell you that this king is not going to work out. There's a lot of foreshadowing of that in our text today. Uh, to paraphrase theologian Christopher Nolan, uh, God is going to give them the king they deserve, not the king they need. They deserve a king like themselves who rejects the Lord as God. They deserve a king who wants to be king in the Lord's place. And that is exactly the kind of king they're going to get. It won't be obvious at first, but it will become obvious in time. They will get the king they deserve. I want to remind us that we've been given God's perspective on all of this, especially in verse 7 and 8. The people are following the same pattern that they have followed since God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. This latest sin is to ask for a king in the Lord's place. But it is just the same fundamental sin that they have fallen into over and over again. Once they have a king, the pattern is going to continue. They choose a king in the Lord's place, and then they continue to choose other things in the Lord's place. The Lord will allow them to have the things that they desire in his place, 
And then they will bear the pain of choosing other things in the Lord's place. And this will continue year after year, generation after generation, century after century. Until finally, the Lord will solve the problem once and for all. God solves the problem in the way that only God can. Remember, before this text, the Lord was king over his people. And the people want a king in the Lord's place. In the fullness of time, the Lord God sent forth his son, born of a woman, to be the true and final king. They wanted a king in the Lord's place. The Lord came to earth to be the king. And so now God's people can have the Lord as king again. Some 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth as God in human flesh. He was born to the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life of righteousness. Jesus did what his people had failed to do throughout history. Jesus perfectly obeyed his father. Jesus never sinned. Unlike his people throughout time, Jesus perfectly fulfilled his father's will. Jesus did what was right in God's eyes. Jesus became the king that his people needed in the way that Samuel foreshadows. Uh, Jesus grew up among outcasts. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus ministered to the down and out. He was among the earthly ash heap, but God raised him up and highly exalted him. Rather than becoming a king through military conquest, Jesus became king by dying on the cross. Jesus became king by dying, um, excuse me, dying on the cross, by paying the price for sin. But Jesus didn't stay dead, or his death would mean nothing. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus conquered death. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus defeated God's enemies and is crowned as king forever. Jesus, the Son of God, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now God's people don't have the king we deserve. We have the king we need. The king who paid for sin on the cross. The king who covers our transgression. The king who loves us and watches over us. The king who saves. If you're not a Christian, I would ask you to consider whether you're really that different from Israel in these days of Samuel. Do you have a king in the Lord's place? Who rules in your heart and life? Who has the authority? 
Who fights your battles? And if you find that anyone or anything has taken the role of king besides the Lord, I urge you now to repent. Repent of putting another king in the Lord's place. Turn from your sin and rebellion. Acknowledge that the Lord alone is God. The Lord alone is king. The Lord alone deserves to sit on the throne. Trust in Jesus Christ, the true king. Be reconciled to this king by faith in Jesus, who lived and died and rose again. Christian, God's people made the wrong choice in 1 Samuel 8. They wanted a king in the Lord's place. We get to serve the king who is on the throne. And whatever may come our way, we can trust in him. He knows all things. He knows what is best. He acts for our good. He works for his glory. And we can rest in him and in his goodness. We trust in the one who is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Instead of a king in the Lord's place, the Lord is king in his place. Let's pray to him. Dear Jesus, we praise you that you are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that you rule as king in your place. We praise you for your revelation to us, how you show us our own hearts and souls, how we, like the Israelites, so often want to put another king in your place. We want to serve and worship and bow down to other things, other people, other desires. We praise you that you sent your son, Father, that you sent your son to earth for us to pay the price for sin so that we could be forgiven and so that Jesus would be exalted as king forever. And we look forward to the day when Christ returns to establish his kingdom and make all things new. What a glorious day that will be. Father, as we leave this time of worship and we go about our days and our weeks, protect us, provide for us, care for us, give us wisdom, help us to love our neighbors well. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, for his glory. Amen.